Chapter Twenty Two of Scenes from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Miette. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter twenty two of Scenes Gin Shops. It is a remarkable circumstance that different trades appear to partake of the disease to which elephants and dogs are especially liable, and to run stark, staring, raving mad periodically. The great distinction between the animals and the trades is that the former run mad with a certain degree of propriety. They are very regular in their irregularities. We know the period at which the emergency will arise and provide against it accordingly. If an elephant run mad, we are all ready for him. Kill or cure, pills or bullets, calomel and conserve of roses, or lead in a musket barrel. If a dog happened to look unpleasantly warm in the summer months, and to trot about the shady side of the streets with a quarter of a yard of tongue hanging out of his mouth, a thick leather muzzle, which has been previously prepared in compliance with the thoughtful injunctions of the legislature, is instantly clapped over his head by way of making him cooler, and he either looks remarkably unhappy for the next six weeks, or becomes legally insane and goes mad, as it were, by act of Parliament. But these trades are as eccentric as comets, nay worse, for no one can calculate on the recurrence of the strange appearances which betoken the disease. Moreover, the contagion is general, and the quickness with which it diffuses itself almost incredible. We will cite two or three cases in illustration of our meaning. Six or eight years ago, the epidemic began to display itself among the linen drapers and haberdashers. The primary symptoms were an inordinate love of plate glass and a passion for gaslights and gilding. The disease gradually progressed and at last attained a fearful height. Quiet, dusty old shops in different parts of town were pulled down. Spacious premises with stuccoed fronts and gold letters were erected instead. Floors were covered with turkey carpets, roofs supported by massive pillars. Doors knocked into windows, a dozen squares of glass into one, one shopman into a dozen, and there is no knowing what would have been done if it had not been fortunately discovered just in time that the commissioners of bankruptcy were as competent to decide such cases as the commissioners of lunacy, and that a little confinement and gentle examination did wonders. The disease abated. It died away. A year or two of comparative tranquillity ensued. Suddenly it burst out again among the chemists, the symptoms were the same with the addition of a strong desire to stick the royal arms over the shop door and a great rage for mahogany, varnish and expensive floor cloth. 
Then the hosiers were infected and began to pull down their shop fronts with frantic recklessness. The mania again died away, and the public began to congratulate themselves on its entire disappearance, when it burst forth with tenfold violence among the publicans and keepers of wine vaults. From that moment it has spread among them with unprecedented rapidity, exhibiting a concatenation of all their previous symptoms. Onward it has rushed to every part of town, knocking down all the old public houses, and depositing splendid mansions, stone balustrades, rosewood fittings, immense lamps, and illuminated clocks at the corner of every street. The extensive scale on which these places are established, and the ostentatious manner in which the business of even the smallest among them is divided into branches, is amusing. A handsome plate of ground glass in one door directs you to the counting-house, another to the bottle department, a third to the wholesale department, a fourth to the wine promenade, and so forth until we are in daily expectation of meeting with a brandy-bell or a whisky entrance. Then, ingenuity is exhausted in devising contractive titles for the different descriptions of gin, and the dram-drinking portion of the community as they gaze upon the gigantic black-and-white announcements, which are only to be equalled in size by the figures beneath them, are left in a state of pleasing hesitation between the cream of the valley the out-and-out, the no-mistake, the good-for-mixing, the real knock-me-down, the celebrated butter-gin, the regular flare-up, and a dozen other equally inviting and wholesome liqueurs. Although places of this description are to be met with in every second street, they are invariably numerous and splendid in precise proportion to the dirt and poverty of the surrounding neighbourhoods. The gin-shops in and near Drury Lane, Holborn, St. Giles, Covent Garden, and Clare Market are the handsomest in London. There is more of filth and squalid misery near those great thoroughfares than in any part of this mighty city. We will endeavour to sketch the bar of a large gin-shop, and its ordinary customers, for the edification of such of our readers as may not have had opportunities of observing such scenes, and on the chance of finding one well suited to our purpose, we will make for Drury Lane, through the narrow streets and dirty courts which divide it from Oxford Street, and that classical spot adjoining the brewery at the bottom of Tottenham Court Road, best known to the initiated as the Rookery. The filthy and miserable appearance of this part of London can hardly be imagined by those, and there are many such, who have not witnessed it. Wretched houses with broken windows patched with rags and paper, every room let out to a different family, and in many instances to two or even three, fruit and sweetstuff manufacturers in the cellars, barbers and red herring vendors in the front parlours, cobblers in the back a bird-fancier in the first floor, three families on the second, starvation in the attics, Irishmen in the passage, a musician in the front kitchen, and a charwoman and five hungry children in the back one. Filth everywhere, 
a gutter before the houses and a drain behind. Clothes drying and slops emptying from the windows. Girls of fourteen or fifteen with matted hair, walking about barefoot and in white great coats, almost their only covering. Boys of all ages in coats of all sizes and no coats at all. Men and women, in every variety of scanty and dirty apparel, lounging, scolding, drinking, smoking, squabbling, fighting and swearing. You turn the corner. What a change! All is light and brilliancy. The hum of many voices issues from that splendid gin shop which forms the commencement of the two streets opposite, and the gay building with the fantastically ornamented parapet, the illuminated clock, the plate-glass windows surrounded by stucco rosettes and its profusion of gaslights in richly gilt burners, is perfectly dazzling when contrasted with the darkness and dirt we have just left. The interior is even gayer than the exterior. A bar of French polished mahogany, elegantly carved, extends the whole width of the place, and there are two side aisles of great casks, painted green and gold, enclosed within a light brass rail and bearing such inscriptions as Old Tom 549, Young Tom 360, Samson 1421. The figures agreeing, we presume, with gallons understood. Beyond the bar is a lofty and spacious saloon, full of the same enticing vessels with a gallery running around it, equally well furnished. On the counter, in addition to the usual spirit apparatus, are two or three little baskets of cakes and biscuits, which are carefully secured at top with wicker work, to prevent their contents being unlawfully abstracted. Behind it are two showily dressed damsels with large necklaces dispensing the spirits and compounds. They are assisted by the ostensible proprietor of the concern, a stout, coarse fellow in a fur cap, put on very much on one side to give him a knowing air, and to display his sandy whiskers to the best advantage. The two old washerwomen who are seated on the little bench to the left of the bar, are rather overcome by the headdresses and haughty demeanour of the young ladies who officiate. They receive their half-quartern of gin and peppermint, with considerable deference, prefacing a request for one of them soft biscuits, with a just be good enough, ma'am. They are quite astonished at the impudent air of the young fellow in a brown coat and bright buttons, who, ushering in his two companions and walking up to the bar in as careless a manner as if he had been used to green and gold ornaments all his life, winks at one of the young ladies with a singular coolness, and calls for a cavortin and a three-out glass, just as if the place were his own. "'Gin for you, sir,' says the young lady when she has drawn it, carefully looking every way but the right one to show that the wink had no effect upon her. "'For me, Mary, my dear,' replies the gentleman in brown. "'My name ain't Mary, as it happens,' said the young girl, rather relaxing as she delivers the change. "'Well, if it ain't, it ought to be,' responds the irresistible one. "'All the Marys as I ever see was handsome gals.' 
here the young lady, not precisely remembering how blushes are managed in such cases, abruptly ends the flirtation by addressing the female in the faded feathers who has just entered, and who, after stating explicitly, to prevent any subsequent misunderstanding, that this gentleman pays, calls for a glass of port wine and a bit of sugar. These two old men, who came in just to have a drain, finished their third quartern a few seconds ago. They've made themselves crying drunk, and the fat, comfortable-looking elderly women, who had a glass of rum strub each, have chimed in with their complaints on the hardness of the times. One of the women has agreed to stand a glass round, jocularly observing that grief never mended no broken bones, and as good people's worry scarce, what I says is, make the most on him, and that's about it. A sentiment which appears to afford unlimited satisfaction to those who have nothing to pay. It is growing late, and the throng of men, women and children who have been constantly going in and out dwindles down to two or three occasional stragglers. Cold, wretched-looking creatures in the last stage of emaciation and disease. The not of Irish labourers at the lower end of the place, who have been alternately shaking hands with and threatening the life of each other for the last hour, becomes furious in their disputes, and finding it impossible to silence one man who was particularly anxious to adjust the difference, they resort to the expedient of knocking him down and jumping on him afterwards. The man in the fur cap and the pot-boy rush out. A scene of riot and confusion ensues. Half the Irishmen get shot out, and the other half get shot in. The pot-boy is knocked among the tubs in no time. The landlord hits everybody, and everybody hits the landlord. The barmaids scream. The police come in and the rest is a confused mixture of arms, legs, staves, torn coats, shouting and struggling. Some of the party are borne off to the station house, and the remainder slink home to beat their wives for complaining, and kick the children for daring to be hungry. We have sketched this subject very slightly, not only because our limits compel us to do so, but because, if it were pursued farther, it would be painful and repulsive. Well-disposed gentlemen and charitable ladies would alike turn with coldness and disgust from a description of the drunken besotted men and wretched broken-down miserable women, who form no inconsiderable portion of the frequenters of these haunts, forgetting in the pleasant consciousness of their own rectitude the poverty of the one and the temptation of the other. Gin-drinking is a great vice in England, but wretchedness and dirt are a greater and until you improve the homes of the poor, or persuade a half-famished wretch not to seek relief in the temporary oblivion of his own misery, with the pittance which, divided among his family, would furnish a morsel of bread for each, gin-shops will increase in number and splendour. If temperance societies would suggest an antidote against hunger, filth, and foul air, or could establish dispensaries for the gratuitous distribution of bottles of lesser water, gin palaces would be numbered among the things that were. End of chapter 22
of scenes from sketches by Boz. Recording by Miette of Miette's Bedtime Story Podcast.